At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So I invite you now to take out the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth and Ruth chapter number 2. Ruth chapter number 2. We are involved in a study of the book of Ruth that we have entitled God Behind the Scene. And Bible teacher Tommy Vinson has suggested that when you come to chapter 2, a title that we could use for chapter 2 would be what a difference a day makes. And that has been true in many people's lives. For example, the life of Moses in Exodus chapter three, he is 80 years old and he is shepherding sheep in a remote area of the wilderness. And the Lord speaks to Moses out of a burning bush and commissions him to be the lead deliverer of the nation of Israel from their slavery to Egypt. And when you see that, and think about that, what a difference a day makes, right? We see it also in 1 Samuel chapter number 17 because there's a young David there. He is a young shepherd boy. And these events transpire. Uh, Some of his brothers are off fighting the Philistines in the area and his dad says to young David, hey, I want you to take some lunch to your brothers. And he goes to deliver the lunch and a series of events happen and he ends up killing the lead guy of the Philistines, a guy by the name of Goliath with a rock and a sling. And immediately this young shepherd boy becomes a hero to the whole nation. I mean, what a difference a day makes. Same thing could be true in my life. It's my freshman year, January 19. 70, I'm in room one, or rather 1029 of Abel Hall when a man who was a little bit pudgy and nearing 40 years old knocks on my dorm room door and he says to me, I want to disciple you and I am a baby Christian, a baby Christian who swore he would never be a pastor. And the ultimate result of that day is that here I am now pastoring for 43 years. And so I would say, yeah, what a difference a day makes. And the same thing is gonna be true in Ruth chapter two. In Ruth chapter two, we have two widows who arrive in Bethlehem. One, you will remember, is Naomi, and she is an older widow. She has also lost her two adult sons. And she comes to Bethlehem confused and bewildered and, yes, embittered, feeling like she had been abandoned by Yahweh God. And then the other widow, of course, is Ruth, who's a young widow from the land of Moab. Moab was an enemy of Israel. And uh, because she was from a foreign place and now she is in Israel, it's very likely that she was going to experience ethnic discrimination, yet she was committed to follow Yahweh God and to serve her mother-in-law. And then you come to chapter two of the book of Ruth and what a difference a day makes. Another title that we could give to chapter two is this, the God who works in the ordinary. 
Sometimes we think of God just working only in a spectacular way, but God also works in the ordinary. Now, we shared last time a little perspective to ponder, and that is this. Mystery in his plan does not mean there is no purpose in his plan. And if you missed the first message in this series, I would encourage you to go back and make sure you capture that because that did a great job of setting up the book and also explaining chapter number one. So we shared last time an outline of the book of Ruth, and I just simply want you to focus on chapter number two because in chapter two, we see providence and grace. We see it occurring in a field. It actually occurs, the events, over a period of weeks. And then we also see in chapter number two, Ruth's devotion. And for the first time, we see Naomi encouraged. Now, when you come to chapter two, there are multiple ways that chapter two can be outlined. I would like to actually share with you a Hebrew outline of chapter two. It's called a chiastic outline. A chiasm means that you're alternating. For example, like you would have A, B, B, and then back to A. And that's the outline that we really see in chapter two. It begins with this prologue in verse one, and then it moves to Ruth and Naomi in verses two and three, and then it moves to Boaz and his staff in verses four to seven, And then in the middle of all of that, we have Boaz and Ruth in verses 8 to 14. Then we double back to Boaz and his staff in verses 15 and 16. Then we double back to Ruth and Naomi in verses 17 to 22. And then we return not just from a prologue, but now we have an epilogue in verse 23. So that's one way to outline chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. You know, one of the things that's really intriguing about the book of Ruth, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but 56 of the 85 verses of this book are dialogue between people. It's very unusual in that regard. So what we want to do now is we want to move to the prologue there that we see in verse 1. Notice it says, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, really what the author of Ruth is trying to do is he's giving us a hint here of what is to come. He's saying, be alert a little bit. There was this person who was a kinsman. He was from the same clan as Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Now, that's gonna have significance when it comes to the laws of Israel as we get into the book a little bit later. But he is described there in verse 1 in the New American Standard as a man of great wealth. Uh, The ESV translates it, he is a worthy man. The Net Bible adds the word prominent to that. Uh, The New Living Living, uh, Translation adds the word influential to that. The NIV translates it, he was a man of Standing, And you say, well, why all these various descriptives? Well, the term that is used to describe him can mean all of those things. It can mean someone who has great wealth, who is worthy, who is prominent, who is influential, who is a man of standing. And we could add to that also, it could be translated a man of moral excellence. 
So there's this individual, and, and the one who wrote the book of Ruth is just saying, hey, take note of this guy, whose name was Boaz. The name Boaz means strength. It's a relatively rare name. It's interesting that in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 21, when a guy by the name of Hiram of Tyre is hired to build Solomon's temple, and in that temple there was two main columns, and he gave names to those two columns, and one of the names was named Boaz. Strength. There would be strength that would hold up the structure of Solomon's temple. Really what the author is saying to us is a little bit of a hint ahead of time is keep an eye on this guy. Keep an eye on this guy. Which then leads us to Ruth and Naomi in verses two and three. And what happens, we're not gonna read every verse, but what happens in verse two is that Ruth makes a proposal to Naomi. She says to Naomi, let me go and glean grain in the fields. Now, there's three things I want us to notice here. The first one that we need to notice is she is titled Ruth the Moabite or Ruth the Moabitess. Remember, we talked about this last time. It was a derogatory term. Ultimately, it'd be like saying in our day, maybe Ruth the Russian, And the reason why this term is used, it's a reminder that there is an atmosphere in Israel for someone who is from Moab to be ripe for ethnic tension. Think about Ruth. She has come here. She has never been here before. She has no food. She has no friends. Humanly, she has no future at all. The second thing I want you to note from verses two and three is we can learn that Naomi has taught Ruth God's word. She had taught Ruth about the Lord's laws related to gleaning. Now, what do we, what do we mean when we say gleaning? Well, here's the way it would work. These are parts of the law of the Lord. As one would begin to harvest grain, the instruction was to not harvest the corners of the field to not harvest the far edges of the field. And the idea was to allow the poor people to pick the leftovers of the harvest. So gleaning meant that you were going to get grain from the corners of the field and you would get grain from grain that had been dropped as part of the harvest. This was a type of food bank that the Lord had designed And we see in several places, for example, in Leviticus 23, 22, it says that you are to do this as those who are farmers and agricultural heads, and it should be allowed that an alien or an outsider or someone who is poor or someone who is needy could glean the field. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, it says that if someone was a orphan or someone was a widow, you were to allow them to glean the field. Again, this is part of the care and concern from the heart of God for those who struggle. And what's interesting about Ruth is she was a triple qualifier. 
She was an alien, she was poor, and she was a widow. Now, the third thing I want us to notice from verses two and three is that Ruth takes initiative here and she is industrious. Gleaning was hard work. And what's interesting to me is given all of Ruth's circumstances, she does not go passive. She doesn't sit around idly. She doesn't wallow in her circumstances. She says to Naomi, let me go out and work and get some food. Reminds me very much of what Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, where he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. A little different approach than sometimes what we see in our day to day. Let me read verse 3 for you. So it says, so she departed, Ruth did, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And then it says, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, it's important to understand that things were a little different with farms in that time. There were no extensive fences around everybody's farms, you know, with signs. This is the Hess field. This is the Robinson field. You didn't have that. And so it says that she happened to come to the field of Boaz. Now, the writer writes that with a wink in his eye. She just happened to come to the field of Boaz. No, it is God's providence that leads her to the field of Boaz. Remember, providence is God's purposeful acts in governing the world in accordance with his eternal plan and for his ultimate honor and glory. She was led by the providence of God to the field of Boaz which then leads us to the section on Boaz and his staff. Now remember, Boaz is a man of moral excellence. He is a man of influence. He is a prominent businessman. And what we get in the next few verses is some insight into his spiritual heart. Look with me, if you would, at verse 4 says, Boaz came from Bethlehem out to the field, and he says to his reapers, may the Lord be with you. May Yahweh God, the God of relationship, be with you. And then they reply back to him, their boss, may the Lord bless you. It's interesting to me that Boaz brings his faith to work. His walk with the living God, with Yahweh God, was an everyday thing for him. And as the story unfolds, we're going to see that Boaz carefully was following the principles of the law of the Lord. Remember, this was the era of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That means, despite what God's word may have said about allowing the poor to glean in the fields, many ignored that. Many discouraged that. But as we're going to see, 
It's almost as if Boaz had a sign out, gleaners welcome, gleaners welcome here. Now I want you to look at verse five. So Boaz says to his servant who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers said, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi, see the word had already gotten out, from the land of Moab. And he goes on to say, she said to us, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained working in the field from the morning until now. And she has been sitting in the house, basically taking a break for just a little while. Now that tells us something about Ruth. Ruth asked for permission to glean in the field. That was not required, but it is a great mark of humility. So what happens is Boaz shows up right in the middle of the harvest and he notices there's somebody out there I don't recognize because again, he would be aware of who the, the normal poor people would be, the normal people struggling who would glean. Now, there's a few commentators who come along and I think they conclude incorrectly that really what's happening here is Boaz is sort of checking out the gals in the field, you know. He's sort of looking for the newest hot babe that might show up on the scene. I don't think that's what was happening here at all. In fact, as we work our way through this, I think there's no way that had anything to do really with what was going on at this point. Which then leads us to looking at, notice how we're working our way down to Boaz and Ruth in verses 8 to 14. And what we see in these verses is Boaz's kindness to Ruth. Down in verse 8, he says to her, don't switch fields. I don't, show, I don't want you to go off to another field to glean. I want you to stay here in my fields and glean. Now, why does he say that? It's because he knew some of the other landowners. He knew how unscrupulous some of them were. He knew it could be unsafe for a single woman to be out there gleaning. It could even be dangerous to her. So he says, don't switch fields. And then he goes on to say, he shares this with her. She said, I have commanded my servants not to touch you. Now again, she is young, she is female, and she is a foreigner. And Boaz knew it was very likely that if she was in certain fields and maybe even in his field, it would be likely that she might receive racial insults, religious insults. Remember, the god of Moab was Chemosh. And even worse than racial and religious insults, she could possibly be exposed to sexual attack. So he tells her that he told his people, don't touch her. And one of the other reasons why I think he said that, and most of us don't know this, but it was very 
common at harvest time for the local prostitutes to come out. I mean, the men working the fields would have extra money. And so there was some anticipation that the prostitutes might show up. And he says, regarding Ruth, don't touch her. Don't touch her. And then you come to verse 10. And notice how Ruth reacts. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your sight? You know, I've been reading this a number of times. When I come to that question, why have I found favor in your sight? It chokes me up a little bit. Because... That's a question I often have for the Lord Jesus. Why have I found favor in your sight? I mean, Ruth is a Moabitess. I am a sinner. And that's often a thought I have when I really think about God's love and grace. Why have I found favor in your sight. You know, in Romans chapter 5 and uh, verse 8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't even make sense to me. Why have I found favor in your sight? Why did you do that for me? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7, you've heard me share this verse many times, where Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer to that is absolutely nothing. Nothing you have in your life or I have in my life is beyond something that I've just received, whether it's our intelligence, our personality, the blessings we have, the opportunities we've had. They're all gifts from the hands of God. Why have I found favor in your sight? Isaac Watts In the 1700s, when he wrote the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, part of the verse goes, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So when I read her saying those words, I think of me saying those words to my Savior. Why have I found favor in your sight? So here's what's interesting. When you get a true view of his love and grace, it takes your breath away. It takes your breath away. And and she's experiencing that very same kind of thing. Then if you look to verses 11 and 12, basically, notice verse 11. Boaz says, your reputation precedes you. All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and you came to a people that you did not previously know. He says, your reputation precedes you now that I know who you are. And by the way, our reputation preceding us, that's what it usually does. That's why we need to be careful about our reputation. Reputation. 
He's basically saying to Ruth, I am fully aware of your choices. I'm aware of the character that you have shown. I'm aware of your committed care to Naomi. And I am aware of your commitment to the Lord. She had trusted in Yahweh God and taken refuge under his wings. Makes me think of Psalm 57.1. This is really what Ruth had done. She'd ultimately said to God, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. What a beautiful picture. In the shadow of your wings, the protection of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. See, Boaz was a man of character, and as a man of character, he values character in other people. So in verse 14, Ruth is touched by his kindness, rather verse 13, and then in verse 14, Boaz says to her, hey, it's midday, join us for lunch. And a couple of things stand out there. First of all, here you have this very prominent, very wealthy guy who has lunch with his workers. Think about that. You know, he doesn't say, I'm going to have steak sandwich over here while the workers are having beans over here. He's sitting down with his workers and having lunch. Second thing that stands out from these verses to me is that Boaz serves Ruth lunch. The cooked grain that they had made for lunch, he serves her which indicates several things to me. First of all, you got servant leadership going on here with Boaz. Secondly, he is communicating to Ruth what? He is communicating to Ruth compassion for her situation, and he is communicating to her acceptance. And that leads us to, after having looked at Boaz and Ruth, We want to look at Boaz and the staff in verses 15 to 16. Notice verse 15, he says again to his servants, let her glean among the sheaves and do not insult her. I want no shaming, I want no disparaging remarks. This may be the very first anti-sexual harassment policy in human history. You know, Boaz has a mindset to protect women, not prey on women. And I don't know if if you're like this, but when I'm reading through Scripture like this, I, I like to go, hold on, time out for a minute. Why is Boaz like that? Why is Boaz like that? And I think there's several reasons why. One is that he truly knew and he walked with the Lord. Because he truly knew the Lord and he walked with the Lord, that's a big part of why he lived the way that he lived. A second reason why I think Boaz was like that is that he was really a truly humble man who lived out his faith and walked with the Lord in a very open way. Why is Boaz like that? Well, I think there's a third reason why Boaz is like that. 
and that is his mom. And you go, well, who is Boaz's mom? Well, his mom was a lady by the name of Rahab. You might remember Rahab. She was a pagan Canaanite prostitute from the city of Jericho. And you go to Joshua chapter number two, and Joshua sends two spies into Jericho before they're going to attack Jericho. And what she does is she chooses this prostitute, Canaanite prostitute, to hide the two spies. And in the process of all of that, she becomes a follower of Yahweh God. In fact, when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, she's in the whole chapter of faith. So she protects the spies. She comes to know the Lord. And in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 23, she and her extended family are rescued by Joshua's order. When we're going to destroy the city, I want you to go in and get Rahab and her extended family and take them out. And then in Joshua 6 verse 25, the last we really hear of her, it says that she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. And you know, if you end it right there in Joshua 6, you're thinking, well, what's the rest of the story? What happened to Rahab when she came to live in Israel? You know what I think happened? She was labeled Rahab the Canaanite prostitute. That's the way they talked about her. She was a female foreigner. No doubt when she came to live in Israel, she was receiving, on the receiving end of insults, and scorn, maybe, I don't know, maybe even an assault that happened to her. I mean, she's a prostitute, despite what she claims and knowing the Lord. What happens to her? Well, in Matthew chapter one, verse five, she met an Israelite by the name of Salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, and they got married. They had a son whose name was Boaz. And I can only assume that Rahab shared with her son her story. She shared about the reproach, the ridicule, the rejection, the ostracizing that she had to overcome. And I would assume that she said to her son, Boaz, I want you to be alert. I want you to be a true man of the Lord. I want you to be different than any of these other men in Israel. And I want you to honor the Lord at all times. I have no doubt that Rahab went through rough times. You know, she trusts in the Lord. She ends up in Israel, but not treated so well when she's there. And no doubt Rahab had questions. Why, Lord, have you led me here? I mean, why am I here? Why am I going through these things? No doubt she was confused. No doubt she was tempted to be embittered. No doubt she experienced an emotional famine like Naomi also did. But God in his providence uses what happened to Rahab as part of his plan. You remember when we recently did a series on being divinely designed to serve and we talked about how God's plan is to shape us for ministry, an acronym. The S stood for spiritual gifts, the H for heart passion, the A for abilities, the P for personality, and the E was our experiences. And God will use 
our experiences, even our painful ones, to shape us to minister to other people. God never wastes anything. God utilizes everything in our life. And in that series, we often said, there's purpose in your past. And I think the same thing was true of Rahab. Now, that then leads us back to Ruth and Naomi in verses 17 to 22. In verses 17 to 22, we learn in verse 17 that she gleaned until evening. She gleaned till dark, and she was able to collect an ephah of barley. You say, well, what's an ephah? Well, it was about two-thirds of a bushel. They tell me that that would weigh about 30 to 40 pounds. Now, most gleaners in a day would collect one to two pounds. Now, remember, if you go back in the story, one of the things Boaz had told his men is drop, drop some extra out there in the field for Ruth to pick up. An ephah of barley was about a half of a month's wages. One person's estimate was that an ephah of barley would feed 50 soldiers for one day. What would it mean to two widows? Now, I want you to think about this. Ruth's off, all this is happening. What's going on with Naomi? Naomi, there's no cell phones. You know, you can't text back and forth. You have to wonder what she was thinking. She had to be thinking, is Ruth okay? I mean, this is a brand new town for her. Could she have gotten lost? Has she been mistreated? Even worse, could she have been attacked out there? And in verse 19, Ruth comes back with all of this barley grain. And she is so encouraged to see her. And she says, where were you? And, and who helped you out? And she gives a prayer in verse 19. There, she said, may he who took notice of you be blessed. And then Ruth says, well, the guy's name is Boaz. And then in verse 20, there is a second prayer that she gives. May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. May Boaz be blessed, uh, blessed by Yahweh God. May he be blessed by Yahweh God. And then she adds, by the way, he's one of our close relatives, which we're gonna see a little bit more as we move on in the book. And then Ruth in verse 21 says, well, he said I could stay there till the end of the harvest. And Naomi goes, that's a great idea. It's a lot better than going out there and getting in a random field and maybe getting attacked, which leads us then to the epilogue in verse 23. We learn there that Ruth worked in Boaz's field to the end of the barley and also to the end of the wheat harvest, which would be multiple weeks. And yes, we would say, what a difference a day makes. Now, I want, to, I want to just draw it all together here and talk about two life lessons. There's many we could do. I want to talk about two life lessons. The first life lesson is this. God is willing for any to come to him. Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. 
Men and women, it makes no difference whether we are a great sinner, whether we are a prideful religious person, whether we are a raw pagan, whether we are a radical Islamist. Jesus loved you enough to die in your place and pay the penalty for your sins. And he invites us, he invites us to find spiritual rest under his wings. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that. And when you do, you also can marvel and ask the question, why have I found favor in your sight? Second, life lesson. is God's goodness hasn't forgotten you. Some of you may be feeling that it has. I like this thought. Providence is more easily recognized in the rear view mirror. (laughs) I mean, often when we're going through life, we can't see where he's leading, but he has a plan and he is there. And blessing may be no more than a day away. I love what Antoinette Wilson wrote. This is incredible stuff. She wrote this. Are you standing at wit's end corner? That means you're at your wit's end because of what's happening. Are you standing at wit's end corner, Christian, with troubled brow? Are you thinking of what is before you and all you are bearing now? Does all the world seem against you? And you in the battle alone, remember at wit's end corner is where God's power is shown. Are you standing at wit's end corner, blinded with wearying pain, feeling you cannot endure it, you cannot bear the strain, bruised through the constant buffeting, dizzy and dazed and numb? Remember at wit's end corner is where Jesus loves to come. And then she goes on to write this. She says, are you standing at wit's end corner? Then you're just in the very spot to learn the wondrous resources of him who faileth not. No doubt to a greater pathway, your footsteps will soon be moved, but only at wit's end corner is the God who is able to, Proved. Wow, that's some great perspective. And I would conclude with these words. Never forget that God is at work in us, Philippians 2.13. God is at work with us, Mark 16.20. And God is at work for us, Romans 8.28. Bow with me in prayer if you would. Father, we thank you again for the book of Ruth. We thank you for how magical this book is. We pray you would help us to really be men and women who understand your providence and how is it, it is at work. And Lord, for all of us in a fresh way, maybe you would just simply encourage us to have that response that Ruth had. Why have I found favor in your sight, Lord? Why have you done that? Why have you given me your grace, your mercy, your love? We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that we're learning. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.